so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Many Christians retreat from the cultures around them because they're afraid of compromising. But at the ERLC's National Conference, J.D. Greer, in his talk, How Can Churches Engage the Public Square Without Compromising the Gospel, gives us wisdom about being in, but not of the world. Living like our Savior will mean actively loving the world. We hope you find courage from this message. I have the privilege of pastoring a church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, which uh, Forbes magazine uh, refers to um, quite often for the past several years as the educational hub of America, um, in part because of the large number of college students that are a part of uh, the Raleigh-Durham Triangle area within a 20-mile radius of our church, um, or 120,000 college students. And so every uh, weekend, every Sunday, we have an extraordinary amount of our congregation that is college students, which I often tell people means um, at least a couple of things about us. In fact, uh, you may have heard me explain this before but it means that church unity um, for us is a real problem during certain times of the year. Uh, You know, I think uh, UNC, Chapel Hill, Duke University, NC State, uh, several hundred students from each of those. I remember being backstage with one of our worship leaders uh, right before um, we got ready to walk on stage to lead the worship service, and one of our worship leaders has on his shirt, um, it says, Go to Hell, Carolina. And I'm like, bro, you cannot lead worship with a, a shirt that tells anybody to go to hell. He said, Pastor, you love the sin, hate the sinner. I'm like, I'm not even sure what that means uh, in that context. But um, that's the reality we live in. But maybe um, even more divisive than the sports teams is questions about politics. Uh, we have a, a very young church, a very young city. We are in the South, yes. Uh, we are in the Bible Belt, I think, technically. But I often hear us referred to as the little circle, one of the little holes in the Bible Belt where you put the buckle because it seems to go uh, all around us, but not quite um, in our midst. Um, So the question that I've been given to address for the next few minutes here is how churches can engage the public square without compromising the gospel. It is a question that I think about quite often, and just to be totally honest with you, um, it's a difficult question for me. Um, I, I, I always feel like I feel guilty on both sides, because I feel like on one hand, I feel like I'm not speaking up enough. I'm being too silent when I see um, destructive things happening in our country. Um, on the other hand, I feel guilty, but like I've said too much and I put obstacles in the way of the gospel and that I ought to be focusing more on the central message of Christianity, which is not political change. The, uh, the central message is um, the Lordship of Jesus Christ and what he did to save us. Um, and so I just feel like I'm right in the middle of the road, always feeling like I'm not doing my job on either side. 
God? So this is a difficult question um, that I've wrestled with. And uh, let me start by saying that a few things I do know for sure. Um, I know and I believe that we have to be involved. Um, First Timothy chapter 2, um, Paul commands believers to pray for kings and all those in authority, that we would be able to, um, to preach freely and to live peaceably without um, others interfering in um, the worship that we do. And so it stands to reason that if Paul commands us to pray, um, and then we see Paul use any chance he has to advocate for the freedom to preach, you know, it stands to reason then that we who have experienced the answer to that prayer on the other side of that prayer and now have the freedom to preach and exercise religion freely, surely should pray for and advocate for its preservation. Now, Romans chapter 13 says that, uh, it says that the sword is given to the government and we ought to submit to the government. And so, as Russ Moore, president of the RLC, um, often points out, um, when the sword is put into the hands of the people, the way it is uh, in the United States system of government, where ultimate power belongs to the people, we have to make sure that it is wielded correctly. And so we have to be involved. Furthermore, I do not believe that the Christian perspective on politics is limited to things like um, abortion or the sanctity of of marriage. Um, The very freedoms that we enjoy to talk about these things come from generations of Christians who applied their worldview to politics. In fact, you can make the argument that the greatest benefits that the Christian worldview has bestowed on the world are not just its teachings on the sanctity of life or marriage, but um, maybe its teaching on the respect for individual liberty, the freedom of conscience, the equality of all people, the corruption of man that necessitates a system of checks and balances on power, great respect for the rule of law, things largely unheard of before the Judeo-Christian tradition introduced them, and things that when you read the documents surrounding the Constitution and the, the documents surrounding the founding of our government, you find that these things are are quite often um, grounded in scriptural viewpoints on life. Think about it. I would not want to live in a pro-life Soviet Union, even if they had the question of when life begins correct. In fact, if the only options were a pro-choice United States or a pro-life Soviet Union, I'd probably pick a pro-choice U.S. as the place that I would want to live because the blessings of freedom of conscience and speech are the greatest of all freedoms and the greatest gifts that the Christian worldview has bestowed upon the world. So we cannot sit idly by and watch those freedoms go and only concern ourselves with upholding traditional marriage or protection of the unborn. We need to care about all that cares about. It's like Abraham Kuyper, the famous Dutch, um, uh, Dutch theologian and prime minister said, there is not one square inch of the entire cosmos over which Jesus Christ does not say mine. Furthermore, the economist Barry Asmus in his book, Poverty of Nations, which he co-writes with theologian Wayne Grudem, very effectively argues that certain kinds of governments exacerbate or even create poverty. So loving the poor means not only putting a band-aid on the damage that poor governmental structures create, loving the poor would have to mean addressing the very structures that created that poverty in the first place. So I know that we have to be involved, but there are four myths that we, and I'm speaking now as a pastor to other pastors, we as younger pastors, I think, must avoid. Let me give them to you. Here's number one. Secondary political ideals are matters of first importance. That would be the first myth, that secondary political ideals are matters of first importance. There is a way, there is a way of talking about politics that communicates that these are issues of first importance, but they are not. And Christians can agreeably disagree on many of them. We can never let our positions on secondary things occupy primary places in our heart for a couple of reasons. First, we might be wrong about some of them. 
We would not be the first people in history to be wrong about a number of of things, um, sometimes um, very wrong. And it would be a tragedy to let our error on a secondary issue obscure our testimony about the gospel. I often tell the church that I pastor, I might be wrong in my position on global warming, but I am not wrong about the gospel, and I do not want my opinion on the first thing to get in the way of my preaching about the second thing. Second, even if we are right about the, um, the perspectives and the opinions that we have on these secondary or tertiary issues, they are not as important as the gospel, even if we are right about them. I might be right in my opinions about global warming or the helpfulness of universal um, health care, but there are government-provided universal health care, but there are Christians who can, in good conscience, disagree. And those things should not be elevated to a point where they divide believers who love and walk with Jesus. This is probably all the more important as we see... Um, the diversification of the evangelical church happening at a much more rapid pace. Uh, one of the great gaps between um, African-American believers and, um, and white believers in churches is over the, some of these secondary and tertiary issues on politics. There are some African-American Christians who look at their white brothers and sisters and cannot comprehend why um, they are not more sensitive to some of the injustices that the African-American community has historically faced and why they're not more sensitive to some of the struggle that they have even in the day that we live in. On the other side, you have white believers who look at um, uh, their um, African-American believing friends and they cannot comprehend how um, they could just sort of turn away from politicians who embrace um, abortion or um, uh, same-sex marriage or things like that. And these are discussions that need to be had. These are discussions that ought to be had among believing people, but they must be done in the right places and they must be done in the right ways. Deciding which issues ought to take precedence in certain elections and which candidates they ought to make us prefer. Um, they ought to be had. Those questions, those conversations need to be had, but they got to be done in the right times and in the right ways. We can perhaps learn a lesson here from uh, two of Jesus's disciples or from Jesus. Um, we know that one of his disciples is referred to in the gospels as the zealot, Matthew the zealot, or excuse me, one's called the zealot and another one's called um, the tax collector. So on Jesus's team of, of 12 intimate disciples, he's got a zealot and a tax collector, which politically speaking, are the left and the right, and are about as opposite politically as you could get among Jews in Israel. Yet they are together as brothers in Jesus's band of disciples, and evidently it's not that these political differences subsided altogether, just that those differences were diminished by a more important and more shaping reality that they had found in, in the Lordship of Christ. So we can talk about things like health care and taxation, but we should talk about them in the right way and never in a way that communicates that they are matters of first importance. And to other pastors, I'll say, when you discuss these secondary or tertiary things from the pulpit, they will always be interpreted in that way as if it were a matter of, of, of primary importance. Here is myth number two. Myth number two is that Christian truth does not apply to politics. This would be perhaps a myth on the other side. As I've already noted, the freedoms we enjoy today in the United States came from generations of Christians who were engaged in the political processes. Thomas Sowell, who is uh, an African-American scholar, has written quite extensively on this, um, says that the Christian worldview teaches very distinctive things about the nature of man, about the value of life, the principles of justice, the purpose of societal institutions, the justice in warfare, the dangers of power and privilege. These things have implications. He says, for how we think about power structures and economics and taxation and military and healthcare and everything in between. Our constitution in the United States grounds the rights and the freedoms of man, not in the will of man, 
Our Constitution grounds our freedoms in the will of the Creator. I think it was Ben Franklin who, um, who said, who was obviously not a very religious man himself, but he's, he made a statement, and I summarized, democracy, democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is the lamb having grounds before God on which to contest the vote. So when Martin Luther King comes along in the United States, he could say that the American majority was wrong, even in how it treated black men and women, even though it was the law of the land, and even though it was the opinion of the majority. And he says, it doesn't matter if it's the law of the land, because it violates the law of the creator, and that is a higher law. If all Martin Luther King had to appeal to was the will of the majority or the history of the Supreme Court, he would have had no leg to stand on whatsoever. And I do not believe that we can give that up in the United States, and we have to continue to press the necessity of the Judeo-Christian worldview in order for the principles of our government to work. As the late Richard John Newhouse used to love to say, when you remove thoughts of God from the government, government will by necessity become like the God. And we believe, I believe we can do this without violating our cherished ideals of the freedom of religion. Freedom of religion never meant that our laws and our freedoms did not arise from a particular worldview base. Our laws and our freedoms and our constitution are founded upon a Judeo-Christian base. And once that foundation is compromised or removed, so will the very constitution that stands upon it. A Hindu or an atheistic worldview leads to laws or freedoms or governmental structures very different than the United States Constitution. In the United States, Hindus are free to practice their religion, but any legal decisions um, uh, about laws and, and, and equity arise through the ethical standpoint of the U.S. Constitution. And when you read the background documents, it's clear that the U.S. Constitution is arising out of the Judeo-Christian ideals of man and freedom and the justice that it stands upon. Um, to my fellow pastors, I will say we need to, in our churches, be raising up the next generations of senators and presidents and congressmen and women to carry the blessings of the Christian worldview into the governments that will rule over our grandchildren. We do not do that as the work of the church um, in the sense that, that, that the president or the senator is himself doing the work of the church, but as a church, we are responsible to help people think through all of their society and all of their relationship through the lens of what God has said about the created order in his word. Myth number three is that there is never a time to take controversial political stance. That there's never a time to take a controversial political stand. On, on the one side, you would have those who seek to comment on everything and treat every political issue as an issue on which we must take a stand. And maybe you think something like the moral majority of um, a few decades ago where uh, you would get a voting guide that, that describes everything down to just the finer particulars of laws and what, um, how Christians should think about those things. And that would be one side. But on the other side, you have people who never comment at all. And they make statements like, well, you never touch politics, because anytime, anytime the church touches politics, that's all that's going to be heard is politics. And, you know, there's certainly an aspect of that is true. Um, we can learn um, lessons from people who have been through things in history. And I'm not trying to say that what we're going through now is anything like um, some of these historical examples, but um, just by way of analogy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, said there's a time when you have to go beyond just preaching that racism is wrong that discrimination is wrong, and you have to actually say, we must work now for the expulsion of the Nazis from positions of power. Uh, he called it a, a gritty or an earthy spirituality that got out of the, the lectern and said, we need to actually think about the political processes that will lead to justice, not just preaching that it ought to be so. Or you think of John the Baptist, who, um, who would end up being executed because he looks at Herod and preaches against open marriage. Essentially what he preached against, and you can almost hear, you can almost hear the blogger saying, John, you need to get back to religious work. If you just talk about, you know, grace and fairness and love, you wouldn't have lost your head. 
But Jesus said, I tell you, that's the greatest prophet ever to live because he confronted the injustices or the, the, um, the sins of his age. I'm at the place where they were, um, uh, place that they were happening. Um, our church made a very difficult decision and has and continues to struggle with these things about when to take our preaching and go the next step and say, this is what action probably looks like. Um, I remember we struggled when North Carolina was um, passing or seeking to pass a constitutional amendment that would ensure that marriage would only be between a man and a woman in the state of North Carolina. Um, our church has been clear in its position that while God loves the homosexual, loves the gay and lesbian, just like he loves um, the straight man and woman, um, that, uh, that marriage was something that God gave uh, between people of different sex. We've been very clear on that. There's no question. But should we then advocate that our people get out and help pass this amendment? Um, we struggle for a long time with it. In that particular case, we, we, we believe that and we, we should and uh, what we were supposed to, that the Holy Spirit was guiding us to do that. Um, we could have been wrong in the decision to get involved there. I, I, I'm not saying that whether it was right or wrong. I'm just saying it was a struggle. And at that particular time, we chose to. There have been numbers of other decisions where we did not get involved and just said, we're going to preach the truth and we're going to let people connect the dots and what that means that they should do. Uh, certainly when it comes to this um, issue now of whether something like uh, Planned Parenthood should be defunded, uh, there are believers who are going to have to wrestle with saying, yes, we teach that, um, that every person made in the image of God at whatever stage of life is precious to God and their life ought to be preserved. Whether we go on from that and push our people to elect those who will defund Planned Parenthood, that's a question that different religious leaders will have to decide whether or not they want to get involved in that particular time. I'm simply saying there's no magic recipe for knowing when this is. Just know that it's a myth that there's never a time to take a controversial political stand. As we see in the days of Bonhoeffer and others and in the days of William Wilberforce, there is a time when you have to say we must not only preach, we must also work for um, the institution of justice um, in our society. Number four, the fourth myth we must guard very carefully against is that we see everything clearly. I've read enough Christian history to know that great Christians can be wrong. I know of many great British pastors, truth-preaching pastors, who were wrong on the question of the helpfulness of British imperialism in, um, in, in, in the 19th century. Um, I just finished a biography of Billy Graham, um, where it's pointed out that Billy Graham was, was, was tragically wrong on some issues relating from the Vietnam War to the trustworthiness of, of Richard Nixon. Um, even Southern Baptist owned W.A. Criswell has the famous sermon uh, where he says, I was never so wrong as when I opposed the passage of civil rights in certain parts of our, um, our society. Extreme humility is in order for us. Um, and we ought to understand that, that God has made a, 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 some things of first importance and made them sufficiently and abundantly clear in the scripture that we must stand upon them and preach them with confidence. There are other things that while we certainly should learn to think through them from a Christian worldview, and we ought to ask rigorous questions, and we ought to lead in both um, critical inquiry and civil discourse, that while we are asking those questions, we, we know that some of the answers we may arrive at may be shaped as much by the culture we grew up in and uh, our own particular biases as it is the truth. And so extreme humility is in order. And above all things, we must focus on that kingdom that is our home while we remain salt and light to those kingdoms which are not, but in which we have the privilege now of being visitors during our sojourn, sojourn here on earth. And think of what Augustine, um, the famous Christian theologian, says. Um, in the essentials, we must have unity in the church. In the non-essentials, 
And I would put many political matters um, in that. In fact, most political matters. Um, In the non-essentials, we must have liberty. And in all things, in all things, he said, we must have charity. God bless you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these moments. Thank you, God, for um, the chance to uh, open your word even briefly and to seek wisdom. God, we think of the sons of Issachar who... Um, Your spirit uh, made them wise because they knew in their age what they were to do and how they were to uh, conduct themselves. God, we ask for help. We ask for wisdom. And God, we ask for unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials. And in all things, we would lead in um, giving one another the benefit of the doubt in a charitable disposition, in humility, um, in, in believing in others and not suspecting them of false motives that we would be characterized by love and charity and humility and faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the ERLC podcast. For more information, visit ERLC.com. And be sure to join us next week as we learn about singles in the marriage culture.